Welcome to Nonprofit Thursdays, where we educate, elevate, engage, and encourage nonprofit organizations and the people who love them. Thank you for joining us as we talk about the tale of two crises. We're going to speak about the crisis of COVID-19 and the crisis of racial reckoning in this country. And we're going to do that with a very, very wonderful guest, Nuka Solomon, who is uh, the CEO of Free Wheelchair Mission. And not only is she just the CEO of Free Wheelchair Mission, she is dynamic. As a leader, she is uh, inclusive. She gains consensus. And she is also young and experienced. So with all of that in combination, we're going to talk to her about the challenges of meeting the tale of two crises. So Nuka, tell us about what Free Wheelchair Mission is. What exactly do you do? Well, we've been around for nearly 20 years. We're a 19-year-old organization based in Southern California. We're a global organization. And we basically, just like our name says, we offer free wheelchairs to those in need throughout the globe. Um, all over the world. We've been in 93 countries, um, and we have a really great footprint in multiple continents. Um, We're basically offering people that need wheelchairs, that can't get them because of their circumstance, an opportunity for hope. And we do that by providing um, a few models of wheelchairs that we have um, that was basically, that were created by our founder, Don Schwerndorfer, over 19 years ago. And the idea is really to lift people off of the ground and give them the dignity that they crave and that they so deserve. There are 75 million people in the world that need a wheelchair. A lot of people don't know that. 75 million people? 75. Wow. I had no clue. Mm -hmm. Of all ages. And we see lots of different reasons and circumstances um, where they've lost their mobility. It could be what you would assume. It could be old age and it could be malnutrition. It could be through accident. But um, in the developing world, not having a wheelchair is basically, um, it's it's devastating. Um, And it's not just devastating for the individual who's lost their mobility, but it's devastating for the entire family um, because then they are then, you know, having the burden of having to carry that individual or care for that individual. And it could potentially reduce their potential as a family to have any sort of upward mobility or ability to just um, uh, feel like they're a part of their community at large. There is a so lot let of- me, let me understand something for the undeveloped countries where, People are walking long distances, for example, to either get water or food or the basic necessities of life, and not to mention those things that they could enjoy. This wheelchair is really at the center of them being able to really survive. Is that correct? Absolutely. It gives them not just an emotional and spiritual hope. Um, That's one of our first missions, but it also gives them an opportunity to potentially go to school go to church, um, to really be exposed to the simplicity of sunshine um, or just engagement with their fellow citizens. There's a lot of stigma in the developing world, sometimes associated with 
long, deep-rooted um, curses that they believe that have been inflicted upon a family, and that's the reason why the person has gotten a disability, or just the shame of having to um, say and know that you have a family member that needs um, you know, um, extra care because it puts a burden on the community. So that wheelchair really lifts up the individual and it also lifts up the family. That's incredible work um, and so much needed. So I'm gonna ask you, uh, as a CEO of a nonprofit, and since you do worldwide work, what was it like the day the COVID-19 or this novel uh, or novel, <laughs> novel uh, coronavirus, how, what came to your mind, body, and spirit when all of that hit? Well, I actually um, is in tune to it a lot sooner than you would potentially think. Um, I think in the United States, we were really starting to feel it in March, in early March. Um, but we um, and our organization were looking at it as early as um, January and before. Um, our wheelchairs are manufactured and have been um, the entirety of our existence in China. The factory that we um, basically um, get our wheelchairs manufactured from is about 400 miles from Wuhan province, which was the epicenter of the virus in China. And so early on, um, we were told by our factory workers that they would need to shut down, um, extending beyond the Chinese New Year period that we always anticipate for them to be closed due to the virus. So our business was halted in some respects because we couldn't get our wheelchairs out. Um, all of our wheelchairs are distributed directly from China to the country of origin where we um, have partners that distribute them for us. So that was an immediate impact for me um, and a, a big concern um, as to how we were gonna continue to operate in terms of the core of our mission. Um, and obviously the care and concern that we had for the people that we've long had a relationship with in China. Um, once they kind of got a handle on things at the end of March, um, we then had an issue here in the United States. To right, right. So then it became, okay, great. We think we can get our wheelchairs out, but our team is now going to be in flux because we will not be able to travel um, internationally to help our distribution partners and do all of the work that we do to really hold their hand and be partners with them in our mission. Um, and then of course, like many other CEOs around our nation, having to deal with how to contend with having a staff that normally is in office and what do you do? Do you close, do you not close? During COVID-19, you were able to raise money and meet your campaign goal which yes. is really, really exceptional and a wonderful thing. Yes. Tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when the crisis uh, first hit us in March, I shut down the office. Um, like many other um, organizations, we shut down, we became a remote staff. Um, and we had to quickly kind of make decisions around our future events. At the time, we, we were planning our July major fundraiser. It's our biggest one of the year, where we usually raise well over $1.5, $1.6 million. Last year, we raised $1.8. Um, and it's the start of our fiscal year in July, so we have a lot of pressure on us, right, to do it well, like most organizations. 
And so at the time, back in March, April, we were really trying to figure it out, you know, and like a lot of people, we didn't know what was going to happen in the summer. And, and, you know, people then were saying, well, things will open up, it'll be better by the summer. But we couldn't be unsure of what we were going to do because planning a 600 person in-person event um, takes a lot of planning, as I'm sure you know. Sure, absolutely. Um, So decisions needed to be made quickly. And we first... um, the first thing we did was we um, launched a campaign to kind of test the waters of the times. Um, and we called it our medical mobility fund. And it was a campaign to really focus on COVID and the work we were doing there. Mm-hmm. We saw that we were getting an uptick in online engagement. And we saw that people were being very responsive to the way we had changed our messaging a little bit to focus on the pandemic. The next thing we did was we made our 5K walk, which normally obviously is in person and takes place in May. We made that a virtual walk or run. And so we just encouraged people online to do whatever they could to exercise and get people to sponsor them. We raised over $44,000 which was a record for us for that small event. And it was a virtual walk. It it, it was, yeah. So what does that look like when you're doing a virtual walk? Well, we have have a hashtag that we've had for years called Team Mobility. So we already had foot soldiers, so to speak, um, in place around the country and really mostly locally that um, do and participate in this event every May. Um, And they quickly mobilized, got their friends and family to sponsor them through, um, you know, online uh, uh, pages of their own uh, making. We gave them the templates and we encouraged them with little tools and things to kind of get them motivated and excited. And we exceeded our our goal and our exceeded what we normally do for the in person. So That's, all of the- oh my goodness, that is so great. What I want to talk about is the inspiration, and just point out the inspiration and the resolve that you had to pivot in this way. And I'm yeah. hoping it's going to help a lot of people who are listening to not freeze up and not to stop what they're doing, but to keep going. By the way, you can't uh, stop. <laughs> no, you can't stop. Uh, and in this period, I'm weighing my biases because I'm usually very biased against special events, except mm-hmm. for organizations like yours, mm-hmm. because, uh, and Robin Hood Foundation is another, that raises the amount of money that they have set out to do because I have found that so many nonprofit organizations have these events. They don't make their fundraising goal. Yeah. And as a result, it is, uh, and it's so time intensive. I call it high energy, low yield. Return. Yes, for the most, for the most part. And we want to definitely get away from that, but you should keep going by all means because you're, you're very successful and you've made, uh, you've taken, fundraising, F-U-N, and fundraising and made it real. So the virtual events, uh, I think, give you a better ROI because you're not spending a lot on some of the things we all know cost a lot. That's how we were. Those few of small virtual events that I spoke of in campaigns were really the test for the larger event. Um, that was our big success in July where we raised over $1.5 We were able to prepare in the spring make a decision quickly 
And the ROI, I mean, honestly, was really about the production team to get it filmed, um, but not the normal things that we spend, which is the catering, the doilies, as I call it, the curtains and every trimming. Yes, all of those frills and yeah. that, that cost money. And then uh, how much staff was involved in this uh, particular effort? The virtual event? Yes, from- and, and, and from the... Uh, from the actual uh, annual gala that would have been a gala. Right. And how did you use volunteers for that? So it's our annual gala is called Miracle of Mobility. We changed the name this year to Miracle of Mobility Live to kind of promote the fact that unlike unlike a lot of other virtual events, we were going to be doing it live. Um, So we had to really engage volunteers around the country, which was a positive that we don't normally get to do when we have it in person here in California. From a positive standpoint, we got to expand our donor base that was participating and coming to the event. Um, So we engaged, I would say, locally about 20 plus volunteers to help us with things like invitations that we sent out for the virtual event. Were they handwritten? Yes. So we um, have um, been doing this for years and we found um, that it's successful to put that personal touch of handwriting invitations. And this year we multiplied by the thousands because we knew we were saving by not having the event, um, you know, in person by adding the number of invitations printing that we spent, and we knew that people were going to be at home, and we knew that they would probably be tired of some screen time and we'd be happy to receive something in the mail. And and so we engaged more volunteers to do some handwriting for us. Um, So that was one way we use volunteers. Another way we use volunteers is through our event committee that we've had longstanding, but this year we had to get them to really change course of action and really get them to promote the event with their friends and family in a different way, trying to get them to help us get people to be online with us on the night of the webcast, which was different. Um, Not everybody is really into social media. Not everybody is really online in the way that you would think, particularly um, an older generation. Um, So our volunteer committee really helped us to do that. And they helped us to drum up the sponsorships because we had concern that because of the economic climate, um, some sponsors would potentially, you know, not be able to do what they normally do. But the the committee really rallied and we raised, um, I think it was close to a quarter of a million dollars in sponsorships. From the Um, volunteer base. Yes. That is wonderful. I want to rest on that point just for a second. You took old school methods with writing out the invitation for this new normal. Yeah. School methods for the new normal. And then you utilized your volunteers to support and make sure that the sponsorships came about. And uh, that's excellent. That is really excellent. Yeah. I think volunteers on the right ones, as I call that, are not just benchwarming um, are the secret sauce to any nonprofit um, because peer-to-peer asks are way more powerful than even your most seasoned major gift officer or CEO could accomplish. 
Um, so as much as you can get a strong army of volunteers, or as we call them ambassadors behind you, um, your organization will continue to thrive. So. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I just want you to pause and give us a couple of hashtags on how to know more about you, because uh, this is fascinating work and a model for what other organizations can learn from. So what are they? So our hashtags uh, for the event, it was Mobility Live. And then our longstanding hashtag has been Gift of Mobility. Um, And you can find that on multiple platforms. Uh, Our webcast uh, for the major event is an hour long. It's readily available on multiple platforms. It's on our website, it's on YouTube. Um, You just need to do search free wheelchair mission videos. Um, And our website is freewheelchairmission.org and that can easily um, show you where to find that and other videos that we've had. Yes, I'm, I'm sure people are going to learn a lot and, and really be inspired by that. Speaking of inspiration, what are one or two things that you would uh, say as advice to CEOs who are facing challenges in crises? First and foremost, at all times, but particularly in times of crisis, you need to stay on top of what's going on and it's your obligation. Um, and then I would say the second thing um, is to have a sense of being able to let go of your plans. Um, So being able to quickly pivot um, and being okay with that, regroup, and then create a new plan. So we've heard a lot about um, different organizations and companies um, building out contingency plans for COVID and and plans for reopening for COVID and that sort of thing. Um, That takes time, that takes research. So being able to switch gears, drop everything, do that for the the safety of your workers and for the longevity of the organization um, is important. And in the examples that I gave you earlier with the virtual events, change gears, figure out a new way to go forth and be creative for the good of the mission. Mm -hmm. So being Um, flexible and, and, and really embracing the, the need to pivot and embracing change. Yeah, embracing change. Yes. Absolutely. So with, 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 that, that. with that, I want to just quickly go to another question, but uh, I'll come back to, to that concern. But I wanted to move to this whole question of racial reckoning. And yes. how, how did you deal with that? Definitely challenging, obviously, for me as a Black Caribbean American woman um, leading an organization, which is a diverse organization. Um, but yet we're, we're technically in a pretty conservative part of California. Um, and it was personally difficult. You know, I have, you know, young, as you know, I have children, um, young adults, I would say. Um, so the concern that any mother would have at the time and then and thinking about my team and the sensitivities of my team while we're all remote and everybody's already emotionally a little bit fragile and nervous about the virus. Um, so it was, it has been, but particularly in, you know, May and June, it's been not easy. Um, and the way I dealt with it, balancing my personal views against the good of the organization and the, the you know, the public messaging of the organization had to be considered. I worked closely with our head of marketing on that. Um, And we did address the unrest in the country in a couple of ways. So 
I sent out, we have a weekly sort of like a blog that our founder does. Um, and so on one particular Friday, I decided to write sort of like my own letter um, addressing the matter and you know, pointing out almost a stance that our organization takes um, in and has always taken in terms of being non-discriminatory and being concerned about all peoples. Um, and that's obviously indicative in our work where yes. the majority yes. of the people that we give wheelchairs to happen to be brown and black all over the world. Mm -hmm. So talking about that in the letter, I think was important to show also from a faith perspective where we stand um, in terms of racial unrest, because we are a faith-based organization. So as a leader of a faith-based organization, how does your faith guide your leadership style? First and foremost is to my team so that they can execute on the mission. So what that means is to model, you know, good moral and ethical behavior and to consider their their needs and their um, feelings in a professional capacity as well, um, giving them the resources, the tools, and the compassion they need to do a good job. Um, and that to me is Christ-centered. So I'm a Christian woman. So that's the way I uh, model it. It's by walking the walk. Um, I'm a tough leader, but I'm one, I think, that shows um, love and care in an appropriate fashion with my team. Mm -hmm. So as we're beginning to wrap up, and in the spirit of Inside the Actors Studio, what is your favorite sound? Oh, my favorite sound? Actually, the laughter of my kids. Um, that's my favorite sound. When I'm in another part of the house and I hear them laughing um, and I just run in their rooms. I mean, and they're, you know, they're young adults now. What's so funny? What's so funny? You know, and they go, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. And they're looking at something online. But usually... Or, or something that, you know, if I'm being silly with them and they laugh back at me, that's actually my favorite sound. But hearing them laugh is the best. It always has been, a, you know, as a mother, you know, from the moment your children start laughing, you know, you never want that to stop. So Yes, it is. It's like music to the ears, right? So Thank happy you. that you were able to be here and Thank share you. with us. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Nonprofit Thursdays where we empower, educate, entertain, and encourage nonprofit leaders. Visit us at www.thegasbygroup.com.